Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1. We are continuing to read at page 39 for this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, which we hope you find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Lecture Second We mentioned yesterday the reason why Jeremiah refused the office of teaching, even because he thought himself unequal to the work, and for this reason he called himself a child, not in age but in knowledge. Hence the word child is to be taken metaphorically for thereby the prophet confessed that he was not sufficiently qualified as to knowledge and practice. Some, as I have said, have unwisely applied this to his age. Though when he was of a mature age, yet he called himself a child, because of his unskillfulness, and because he possessed not the gifts necessary for an office so important. Footnote. The words admit of two meanings. Non-English word. I have not known word, or I know not word. The phrase may signify, I have no word to say, or I, I know not how to say a word. The first meaning is what the context seems to countenance. The answer given to him refers to his two objections, that he had no word to say, and that he was a young man. The last is first answered, according to the usual mode of writing adopted by the prophets, quote, to everyone whom I shall send thee to, Thou shalt go, unquote. And then the first objection is removed, quote, And everything that I shall command thee, thou shalt speak, unquote. The answer goes on and refers to the points of the same order, Fear not, and then to remedy the want complained of, Jehovah is represented as putting his words in his mouth, so that he might have what was necessary for him to say. God promised courage, though he was young, and gave him a message to deliver. Thus his two objections were removed. We meet with a similar phrase in chapter 6, 15, verse 8. I'm sorry. Uh, 8, 12, which is literally, And shame they know not. End footnote. Now follows the answer given to him. Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go. God not only predicts here what the prophet was to do, but declares also what he designed him to do and what he required of him, as though he had said, 
It is thy duty to obey, because I have the right to command. Thou must, therefore, go wheresoever I shall send thee, and thou must also proclaim whatsoever I shall command thee. By these words, God reminds him that he was his servant, and that there was no reason why a sense of his own weakness should make him afraid, for it ought to have been enough for him simply to obey his command. And it is especially necessary to know this doctrine, for as we ought to undertake nothing without considering what our strength is, so when God enjoins anything, we ought immediately to obey his word as it were with closed eyes. Prudence is justly praised by writers, and it is what ought to be attended to by all generally. They ought to consider what those shoulders can bear and cannot bear. For whence is it that many have so much audacity and boldness, except that they hurry on through extreme self-confidence? Hence, in all undertakings, this should be the first thing, that everyone should weigh well his own strength and take in hand what comports with the measure of his capacity. Then no one would foolishly obtrude himself and arrogate to himself more than what is right. But when God calls us, we ought to obey, however deficient we may in all things be, and this is what we learn from what God says here. Say not, I am a child. That is, though thou indeed thinkest thyself destitute of every qualification, though thou art conscious of thine own weakness, yet thou shalt go, thou must go wherever I send thee. God then requires this honor to be simply concealed to him, that men should obey his commands, though the qualification necessary to execute them be wanting. It afterwards follows, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. We may learn from this verse that Jeremiah, when he observed the heavy and hard conflicts he had to undertake, was greatly disturbed for he had not courage enough firmly and boldly to assail his enemies, so many and so violent. He indeed saw that he had to do with a degenerated people who had almost all departed from the law of God, and since they had for many years shaken off the yoke and were petulantly exulting in their freedom, it was difficult to bring them back to obedience and to a right course of life. It hence appears that the prophet was restrained by this difficulty so as not to venture to undertake the prophetic office. But God applied a suitable remedy to his fear. For what does he say? Fear not their faith. It appears then that when Jeremiah said he, that he was a child, he had in view, as I had already hinted, the difficulty of the undertaking. He could hardly bear to carry on contests so severe with that rebellious people who had now become hardened in their wickedness. We hence see how he refused, in an indirect manner, the burden laid on him, for he ventured not openly and ingenuously, and in plain words, to confess how the matter was. But God, who penetrates into the hearts of men, and knows all their hidden feelings and motives, heals his timidity by saying, Fear not their faith. Footnote. The proper rendering is, fear not before them or on their account. Non-English word is invariably a preposition, before, from before, because of, on account of, for, by, through. Deuteronomy 2.21 Exodus 14.19 Deuteronomy 7.19 
Jeremiah 6.13. And it is often, though not always, so rendered in our version. The very same phrase is found in Joshua 6, I'm sorry, 11.6, and rendered, Be not afraid because of them. And also in this book, they were afraid of them. It may indeed be rendered, Fear them not, or Be not afraid of them. To introduce face or faces is by no means right. Gattaker's rending, rendering is Fear not before them, and Blaney's Be not thou afraid because of them. Editor. End footnote. Now this passage shows that corruptions had so prevailed among the, the chosen people that no servant of God could peaceably perform his office. When prophets and teachers have to do with a teachable people, they have no need to fight. But when there is no fear of God and no regard for him, yea, when men are led away by the violence of their lusts, no godly teacher can exercise his duty without being prepared for war. This, then, is what God intimates. When he bids his prophet to be courageous, for he saw that there would be as many enemies as professed themselves to be the children of Abraham. The reason also for boldness and confidence that is added ought to be noticed, for I am with thee to deliver thee. By these words, God reminds the prophet that there would be sufficient protection, protection in his power, so that he had no need to dread the fury of his own nation. It was indeed at first a formidable taking, undertaking when Jeremiah saw that he had to carry on war, not with a few men, but with the whole people. God sets himself in opposition to all men and says, I am with thee. Footnote. Earthly kings and sovereigns, observes Gadiker on this verse, are not wont to go with those whom they send an embassage. God goeth along with those whom he sends and is by his powerful protection at all times and in all places present with them. Editor. And footnote. Footnote. Fear not. We hence see that due honor is then conceded to God, when being content with his defiance we disregard the fury of men, and hesitate not to contend with all the ungodly, yea, though they may rise up in a mass against us. And were their forces and powers the strongest, we ought yet to feel assured that the defense of God alone is sufficient to protect us. This is the full meaning of the passage. It now follows. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down to build and to plant. Here Jeremiah speaks again of his calling, that his doctrine might not be despised as though it proceeded from his private individual. He therefore testifies again that he came not of himself, but was sent from above, and was invested with the authority of a prophet. For this purpose, he says, that God's word were put, were put in his mouth. This passage ought to be carefully observed, for Jeremiah briefly describes how a true call may be ascertained. When anyone undertakes the office of a teacher in the church, it is ascertained even by this, when he brings nothing of his own, according to what Peter says in his first canonical epistle, let him who speaks speak as the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4.11 
That is, let him not speak doubtingly, as though he introduced his own glosses, but let him boldly and without hesitation speak in the name of God. So also Jeremiah in this place, in order that he might demand to be heard, plainly declares that the words of God were put in his mouth. Let us then know that whatever proceeds from the wit of man ought to be disregarded, for God wills this humor to be conceded to him alone, as it was stated yesterday, to be heard in his own church. It hence follows that none ought to be acknowledged as God's servants, that no prophets or teachers ought to be counted true and faithful except those through whom God speaks, who invent nothing themselves, who teach not according to their own fancies, but faithfully deliver what God has committed to them. A visible symbol was added, that there might be a stronger confirmation, but there is no reason to make this a general rule, as though it were, as though it were necessary that the tongues of all teachers should be touched by the hand of God. There are here two things, the thing itself and the external sign. As to the thing itself, a rule is prescribed to all God's servants, and they bring not their own inventions, but simply deliver, as from hand to hand, what they have received from God. But it was a special thing, as to Jeremiah, that God, by, outstretching out, by stretching out his hand, touched his mouth. It was that he might openly show that his mouth was consecrated to himself. It is therefore sufficient as to the ministers of the word that their tongues be consecrated to God so that they may not mix any of their own fictions with his pure doctrine. But it was God's will, as to Jeremiah, to add also the visible signs of the thing itself by extending his hand and touching his mouth. God having now shown that Jeremiah's mouth was consecrated to himself and separated from common and profane use, proceeds to invest him with power. See, he says, I have set this day, I have set thee this day over nations and over kingdoms. But these words God shows how reverently he would have had his word received, even when conveyed by frail mortals. <clears throat> there is no one who pretends not that he desires to obey God, but yet hardly one in a hundred really receives his word. For as soon as he speaks, almost all raise a clamor, or if they dare not furiously and in a hostile manner oppose it, we yet see how some evade it and others secretly oppose it. The authority then which God ascribes to his own word ought to be noticed by us. Behold, I have set thee over nations and kingdoms. Farther, by saying, See, I have set thee, he encourages the prophet to be magnanimous in spirit. He was to remember his calling and not timidly or servilely to flatter men, or to show indulgence to their lusts or passions. See, he says, we may hence perceive that teachers cannot firmly execute their office except they have the majesty of God before their eyes, so that in comparison with him they may disregard whatever splendor, pomp, or power they may, there may be in men. Experience indeed teaches us that the sight of men, whatever dignity they may possess, be it the least, brings, forth, brings fear with it. Why are prophets and teachers sent? That they may reduce the world to order. They are not to spare their hearers, but freely re reprove them, that whenever there may be need, they are also to use threatenings 
when they find men perverse. But when there is any dignity connected with men, the teacher dares not to offend. He is afraid of those who are invested with power or who possess wealth or a high character for prudence or who are endued with great honors. In such cases, there is no remedy except teachers set God before their eyes and regard him to be himself the speaker. They may thus, with courageous and elevated minds, look down on whatever height and preeminence there may be among mortals. This, then, is the object of what God says here. See, I have set thee over nations and kingdoms. For he shows that there is so much, so much authority in his word, that whatever is high and exalted on earth is made subject to it. Even kings are not accepted. But what God has joined together, let no man separate. God indeed extols here his prophets above the whole world, and even above kings. But he has previously said, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth, so that whoever claims such a power must necessarily bring forth the word of God, and really prove that he is a prophet, and that he introduces no fictions of his own. And hence we see how fatuitous is the boasting of the Pope and of his filthy clergy when they wickedly dare to appropriate to themselves what is here said. We are, they say, above both kings and nations. By what right? God hath thus spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. But these two things are to be joined together. I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have set thee over nations and kingdoms. Now let the Pope show that he is furnished with the word of God, that he claims for himself nothing that is his own, or apart from God, in a word that he introduces nothing of his own devices, and we shall willingly allow that he is preeminent above the whole world. For God is not to be separated from his word, as his majesty shines eminently above the whole world, world yea, and above all the angels of heaven, so there is the same dignity belonging to his word. But as these swine and dogs are empty of all true doctrine and piety, what effrontery it is, yea, what stupidity, to boast that they have seen that they have authority over kings and nations. We, in short, see from the context that men are not here so much extolled, though they may be true ministers of celestial truth, as the truth itself. For God ascribes here the highest authority to his own word. Though its ministers were men of no repute, poor and despised, and having nothing splendid connected with them. The purpose for which this was said, I have already explained. It was that true prophets and teachers may take courage and thus boldly set themselves against kings and nations when armed with the power of celestial truth. He then adds, to root up, to destroy, to pull down, to lay waste. God seems here to have designedly rendered odious his own word and the ministry of the prophet, for the word of God in the mouth of Jeremiah could not have been acceptable to the Jews except that they perceived, except they perceived that it was for their safety and welfare. But God speaks here of ruin and destruction, of cutting down and desolation, but he subjoins to build and to plant. God then ascribes two effects to his words, that on the one hand it destroys, pulls down, lays waste, cut off, and that on the other 
it plants and builds. But it may, however, be rightly asked, why does God at first speak of ruin and extermination? The order would have seemed better had he said first, I set thee to build and to plant, according to what is said by Paul, who declares that vengeance was prepared by him and the other teachers against all despisers and against all the height of the world, when your obedience, he says, shall be completed. Paul then intimates that the doctrine of the gospel is properly, and in the first place, designed for this end, to call men to the service of God. The Jeremiah here puts ruin and destruction before building and planting. It then seems, as I have said, that he acts inconsistently. But we must ever bear in mind what the state of the people was. For impiety, perverseness, and hardened iniquity have for so long a time prevailed that it was necessary to begin with ruin and eradication, for Jeremiah could not have planted or have built the temple of God except he had first destroyed, pulled down, laid waste, and cut off. How so? Because the devil had erected there his palace. For as true religion had been for many years despised, the devil was there placed, as it were, on his high throne, and reigned uncontrolled at Jerusalem and through the whole land of Judea. How then could he have built there a temple for God in which he might be purely worshipped, except ruin and destruction had proceeded? For the devil had corrupted the whole land. We indeed know that all kinds of wickedness then prevailed everywhere, as though the land had been filled with thorns and briars. Jeremiah then could not have planted or sown his heavenly doctrine until the land had been cleansed from so many vices and pollutions. This is no doubt the reason why in the first place he speaks of cutting off and ruin, of exterminating and eradicating, and afterwards adds planting and building. The heap of words employed shows how deep impiety and the contempt of God had fixed their roots. God might have said only, I have set thee to pull down and to destroy, he might have been content with two words, as in the latter instance, to plant and to build. But as the Jews had been obstinate in their wickedness, as their insolence had been so great, they could not be corrected immediately, nor in one day, nor by a slight effort. Hence God accumulated words, and thus encouraged his prophet to proceed with unwearied zeal in the work of clearing away the filth which had polluted the whole land. We now then understand what is here said and the purpose of using so many words. Footnote The whole of this verse is arranged according to the usual manner of the prophets. The words nations comes first and then kingdoms. Three lines follow. The first word in each line refers to kingdoms and the last to nations. The non-English word thou in the second line is omitted in many copies and there seems to be no need of it and it is not true what Blaney says that there are MSS which supply the non-English word before the last line though it, though it be supplied by the Septuagint to preserve this distinct meaning of each verb I offer the following rendering see I have set thee this day over nations and over kingdoms to root up and to break down, to destroy and to erase, to build up and to plant. He was to root up kingdoms and to break down nations. Then he adds stronger words, for he was to destroy or wholly to destroy kingdoms and to erase or to obliterate nations. 
The reason for their repetition is well stated by Calvin. As to his other work, two words only are used. He was to build up kingdoms and to plant nations. A nation, of course, exists before a kingdom, and this order is observed in the second line. But the order, as it is usual with the sacred writers, not only of the Old, but also of the New Testament, is then reversed. See an instance in Roman 10, 9 and 10, where indeed the true order is given last, the ostensible act being in the first instance stated, and then the principle from which it proceeds. Editor. End footnote. But he speaks again of kingdoms and nations. For though Jeremiah was given as a prophet especially to his own nation, yet he was also a prophet to heathen nations, as they say by accident, according to what we shall hereafter see. And it seems that God designedly mentioned nations and kingdoms in order to humble the pride of that people who thought themselves exempt from all reproof. Hence, he says, that he gave authority to his servant not only over Judea, but also over the whole world, as though he had said, Ye are but a small portion of mankind. Raise not then your horns against my servant, as ye shall do this without effect. For he shall exercise power not only over Judea, but also over all nations, and even over kings, as the doctrine which I have deposited with him is of such force and power that it will stand eminent above all mortals, much more above one single nation. We at the same time see that through the treachery of men constrains God to use severity, yet he never affects his own, forgets his own nature, and kindly invites to repentance those who are not wholly past remedy, and offers to them the hope of pardon and of salvation. And this is what celestial truth ever includes. For though it be the odor of death unto death to those who perish, it is yet the odor of life unto life to elect the God, to the elect of God. It indeed often happens that the greater part turn the doctrine of salvation to their ruin. Yet God never suffers all to perish. He therefore makes the truth the incorruptible seed of life to his elect and builds them up as his temples. This is what we must bear in mind. And so there is no reason why the truth of God should be disliked for us by us, though it be the occasion of perdition to many. For it always brings salvation to the elect. It so plants them that they strike roots into the hope of a blessed immortality, and then it builds them for holy temples unto God. It now follows, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Verse 12. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten my word to perform it. God confirms in this passage what he had previously said of the power of his word. These two verses, then, are to be seen as explanatory, for no new subject is introduced. But the former part is confirmed, that the prophets spoke not in vain or to no purpose, because they were invested with celestial power to plant and to build, and on the other hand, to pull down and to root up, according to what we have quoted from Paul, who says that true teachers are armed with such power. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 and 6. We have in readiness, he says, vengeance against all the unbelieving, however proud they may be, and through their height may, and though their height may terrify the whole world, 
Yet we have a sword in our hands which will slay them, for God's word has sufficient power to destroy the rebellious. God then proceeds with the same subject when he says, What seest thou, Jeremiah? He had set before him a staff or a rod of almond, as some render the word, and non-English word, shaked, which means an almond. But as it comes from a verb which means to watch or to hasten, we cannot fitly render it here, almond. I do not, however, deny that the Hebrew word has this meaning, meaning, but it is written here with kamets. The, partici- the participle which afterwards follows has holum. We hence see what affinity there is between the two words. The word shaked, an almond, is derived from the verb shaked, to watch, and it has been thought that this tree is so called because it brings forth fruit earlier than other trees. For almonds, as it is well known, flower even in winter and in the coldest seasons. Now, were we to say in Latin, I see a rod or a staff of almond, and were the answer given, thou hast rightly seen, for I watch, the allusion in in the words would not appear. The sentence would lose its beauty, and there would indeed be no meaning. It is hence necessary to give another version, except we wish to pervert the passage and to involve the prophet's meaning in darkness. It should be, I see the rod, or the staff, of a watcher. Let us grant that the almond is intended, yet the tree may be called watchful according to what etymology requires, and also the sense of the passage, as all must see. Footnote. The word is rendered a rod of almond by the Septuagint, the Arabic version, and Theodosian, and also by Piscator, Drusius, Grotius, and Blaney, and the rod of the watcher by Sim, A.Q., and the Vulgate. The latter is no doubt more suitable in a translation. Some conclude from what is related in uh, Numbers... 17, that the head of each tribe carried a wand or a staff made of the almond tree as a token of watchfulness. If so, the probability is that this wand was presented to the view of the prophet. It being a well-known emblem of watchfulness and called perhaps the watchful rod or staff, it was most suitable to the purposes here designed. The verb non-English word does not mean to hasten but to watch or to be awake then the version of the passage would be the following. Verse 11, And the word of Jehovah came to me, saying, What seest thou, Jeremiah? And I said, The rod of a watcher is what I see. Verse 12, Then Jehovah said to me, Thou seest rightly, for I am watching over my word to do it. Editor. End footnote. God then caused his servant to see the staff of a watcher. For what purpose? The answer is given. Thou hast rightly seen the staff of a watcher, because I watch over my word to execute or fulfill it. Interpreters seem to have unwisely confined this to the punishments afterwards mentioned. They think that what is intimated is that the threatenings which the prophet announced would not be without effect, because God was prepared to inflict whatever he would denounce. But this, as I think, is too restricted a view. For God, I have no doubt, extols here his own word, and speaks of its accomplishment, as though he had said, 
that he spoke not by his servants, that what they said might vanish into air or fall to the ground, but that power would accompany it according to what is said in Isaiah, not return shall my word to me empty, but shall prosper in all things. That is, I will cause the prophetic doctrine to take effect, that the whole world may know that I have not spoken in vain, and that my word is not an empty sound, but that it has real power, which is in due time will appear. Hence I have said that these verses ought to be connected with the last, in which God said that he sent his prophet to root up and to plant, to demolish and to build. He then gives a proof of this in other words and says that he would watch over his word, that he might execute whatever he had announced by his servants, as though he had said, I indeed allot their parts, so to speak, to the prophets. But as they speak from my mouth, I am present with them to fulfill whatever I command them. In short, God intimates that the might and the power of his hand would be connected with the word, of which the prophets were ministers among men. Thus it is a general declaration which refers not only to punishments but also to promises. Rightly then hast thou seen, he says, for I am watching. God does not here resign his own office to Jeremiah, though he employs him as his teacher, for he shows that the power to accomplish what the prophet would declare remained with him. God indeed does not here ascribe to Jeremiah anything as his own or apart from himself, but sets forth only the power of his word, as though he had said, Provided thou be my faithful minister, I will not frustrate thy hope, nor the hope of those who shall obey thee, for I will fulfill whatever thou and they must may justly hope for, nor shall they escape unpunished who shall resist thee, for I will in due time bring on them the punishment they deserve. He therefore uses the word, Watch or to hasten, in order to show that he stood ready to give effect to his word at the appointed time. The effect does not indeed always appear to us. It is on this account, said by Habakkuk, that if prophecy delays, we are to wait. For it will not be, he says, beyond its time, but coming, it will come. God then bids us with quiet minds to wait for the accomplishment of his word. But he afterward adds, in order to modify what he had said, coming it will come. That is, I will accomplish and really perform whatever my prophets have spoken by my command. So there shall be no delay, for the suitable time depends on God's will and not on the judgment of men. It then follows that as the clock strikes, I cannot proceed farther today. Prayer Grant, Almighty God, that since thou art pleased kindly to invite us to them thyself and hast consecrated thy word for our salvation, O grant that we may willingly and from the heart obey thee and become so teachable that what thou hast designed for our salvation may not turn to our perdition, but may that incorruptible seed by which thou dost regenerate us into a hope of the celestial life so drive its roots into our hearts and bring forth fruit that... and that thy name be glorified, and may we be so planted in the courts of thine house that we may grow and flourish, and that fruit may appear through the whole course of our life, until we shall at length enjoy the blessed life which is laid up for us in heaven, through Christ our Lord. Amen.
This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog containing containing classic and contemporary Puritan Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be mailed by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L, 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent us your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading. And remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in, in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And Second Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.